Uh, this sermon is not going to be laid out quite like some of my other ones, just because of the nature of the passage that we're covering. And I'll give the preface by saying, <clears throat> you can file this away in your personal uh, Bible study uh, uh, toolbox uh, for later. You need to have several different tools in your toolbox, and sometimes some are just generally applicable and you need to understand them. They'll help you out later when you're studying that there are different kinds of texts in the Bible. There are descriptive texts and there are prescriptive texts. Uh, a prescriptive text is just like a prescription when you go to your doctor and your doctor gives you a, a, a diagnosis. He tells you, hey, here's what's wrong. And then he gives you a prescription. Here's what you need to go and do. And here's what you need to go take. Maybe if it's medicine, that'll help you clear up the problem. Prescription, prescriptive, what you should do. And there's another type of text in the Bible that is descriptive. It doesn't tell you what you should or should not do. It just tells you what God did. It just tells you what happened. Uh, so what we're going to read tonight is not a prescriptive text. It is a descriptive text. It's just going to explain to you something that happened in the history of the church. And it's going to be what happened in the life of one of our favorite controversial Christians. Not controversial because of what he says, but because he has a knack for stirring up controversy. Paul. Uh, and up to this point, we haven't really seen that many disagreements amongst our, our main characters in the story so far. You occasionally have the, the church kind of wondering, should we minister to Gentiles or are we just Jews? And then they figured out, no, we do need to minister to them. And then there was the disagreement over, well, sure, we know we should minister to Gentiles, but they should become Jews. And that was a disagreement. And then they argued over that. No, they don't have to. Today we're going to see a disagreement actually kind of in our main characters here, the folks we've been following, and we're going to see a disagreement in between Paul and Barnabas. So if you would stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to start in verse 36 of chapter 15, and we're going to go down through the end of verse 41. Acts chapter 15, verse 36 through verse 41. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word, and thank you for us learning to understand that there are some times that we can just agree to disagree and move on in unity, even if unity doesn't look like what it did five minutes ago. Um, so, Father, we hope that you'll give us wisdom. We pray that you will teach us to understand your word and learn how to handle disagreement in a way that honors and glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Disagreements. I know none of y'all. Raise your hand if, you, if you've ever seen a disagreement in church. Anybody at all? Yay, yeah, we, we disagree in church. Why? Because church is made up out of people. And people disagree. Uh, that's just a fact of life. And we'll do better if we just go ahead as a church and admit the fact that we're going to have disagreements. 
that it's going to come up. Sometimes you've got serious disagreements. Sometimes you've got disagreements that probably ought not happen in the first place and aren't that big of a deal. But either way, they're going to happen. And I said that this is not going to be a normally laid out sermon just because of the way the passage is. This is purely descriptive and all it does is it gives you kind of a break in the story and it tells you why you don't have Paul and Barnabas tag-teaming anymore. That you hit kind of a fork in the road where Paul goes one way and the story follows him and Barnabas goes another. So tonight what I want us to do is since the disagreement is obviously the central part of this text, I want us to talk on this Sunday before Reformation Day about disagreements in the church. And how we ought to handle them when, not if, when they arise. Because the church is made out of people. And because we are not glorified and completely devoid of the presence of sin in our lives yet, we are going to disagree. And we need to know how to handle it when that comes up. So first, I want us to look, and we got three different types of disagreement that we're going to talk about tonight. The first one is going to be the one that we actually see in this passage. This is methodological disagreements. And I've given you all of these on your handouts along with the solution to them. A methodological disagreement. What does that mean? That does not mean we disagree with the Methodist on something. Um, that, uh, although there are a few things that we do. Um, this is not about Methodists. This is about methods. This, these are disagreements that have to do with how we do things. Or how, how we think something ought to be done. Methodological disagreements. And what is the solution? The solution is either come to a favorable compromise or, in the effect that you can't do that, work separately. It is not always a defeat. It is not always an insult. And it does not always mean that two sides can't get along when you decide to work separately. In fact, sometimes the only way two people can continue to get along is if they work separately. Have you ever had any experience with that? Where you got two people who are really good at what they do they're just not good at doing it together. Sometimes, the only way to maintain unity is for them to do their work separately. Let's look at this passage real quick, and then we'll talk about a few different methodological differences and how this might work out. Now, starting in verse 36, we get a great suggestion from Paul. Paul, talking to his ministry partner Barnabas, says, Let's go back and visit our brethren in every city where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And you can go and you can read the rest of Paul's letters and you can see that Paul cares a lot about the folks that he has gone and he's preached to. He, he's been in all these different churches. I mean, he refers to Timothy like a son in the faith later. He refers to churches like they're his children. He refers to them as his spiritual children, and he is their spiritual father, and he wants to see them grow. He cares about them. He loves them. So th you see this coming out of Paul right here, and that's not to say that Barnabas doesn't. It's not to say Barnabas doesn't love them. It's just Paul that brings the idea up. And this seems like a good idea. And Barnabas agrees with him. So they're putting together their team to go. And in verse 37, it says, Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. Now who in the world is this? Now we've seen John Mark before, uh, very briefly. And I told you we were going to come, he was going to show up again later. That he was going to be an issue again later. Well, 
Now, I don't know that this is on your handout. I don't think it is. I haven't marked it as being on there. But if you were to make a note, just stick your finger where you are, and go back a couple chapters to Acts chapter 13, verse 13, you would read this. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. That's this John Mark. That Paul and his crew pack up and they're ready to keep going on their missionary journey and John packs up his toys and goes home. Now this is not the Apostle John. This is, this is little missionary partner John here. This is not big John. This is little John. And he just packs up his toys and he goes home. He's had enough. He's tired. The road's hard. He wants to go back to his own bed for a little bit. How do I know that, this, that that's what it is? Well, look at the way Paul reacts here. Barnabas brings up the idea, Hey, we need to take my little cousin, which by the way, he was. We need to take my little cousin Mark back out on the road with us. He needs to come back out on tour. Verse 38, But Paul insisted that they should not take with them now remember, this is Luke writing this now, okay? This is Luke writing. Let's see who you think Luke agrees with. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Oh boy. Luke sounds like he agrees with Paul. Paul says, oh, well that's real nice that he wanted to go home while we're getting run out of town while we're having city magistrates turned against us, while we're getting stoned and beat up and spirited out of town in the middle of night by these Lord-loving believers that saved our lives, John decided this was too much for him and he wanted to go back to the house. And now you want to take him back here to these places that he couldn't handle the first time? Uh-uh, I ain't doing it. So you got Barnabas on one hand. Remember, who's Barnabas? He's the son of encouragement. Come on, Paul. Let's give him another shot. It was tough on him the first time. Yeah, it was tough on me too. They threw rocks at me. I'm not doing it. And these two guys reach an impasse. Paul had not gotten over this. And this is not some petty disagreement, okay? This is not some petty bitterness, you got to consider if you're Paul, you may very well be putting your life on the line for the gospel and for the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may have to move quickly. You may have to speak boldly. And you may only get one shot. And Barnabas is saying, let's take a guy that in Paul's eyes has already compromised his trustworthiness. This is not an issue of personal slight for Paul. This is an issue of, I don't know that I can trust him as a co-worker in the gospel at this point. I'm not willing to go and depend on him. And then you go back and you look at what happens. Verse 39, the contention between them became so sharp that they parted from one another. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. So let's go a little bit closer to how I read that in one of my, one of my commentaries. That, that Barnabas did take Mark, but he doesn't take him that far. 
He takes them a little bit closer to home. Maybe less not. So Barnabas didn't totally disagree with Paul. Barnabas kind of understood, all right, Paul has a point, but I still want him back out there working. So he takes him a little bit closer to home, takes him to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, we know that Paul was commended by, by, the, grace to, by the brethren to the grace of God for his work, so this is not a split between Paul and Barnabas along the lines of, I'm mad at you and I don't want anything to do with you anymore. That's not one of these splits. This is purely over. Barnabas thinks the, the task, their task, what they've been commissioned to, missionary work among the Gentiles. Barnabas thinks that that would best be accomplished by taking with them John Mark. Saul, or Paul, thinks that that would be a detriment to accomplishing the task and they need to bring along someone different because Mark is not trustworthy. This is not a personal spat. This is not a preference spat. This is, this is the same thing as if you see somebody, if, if a manager, if a boss has two resumes on his desk and you want, you want to hire the most qualified employee. That's not anything personal. You just don't want to put your business, your task, in the hand of someone who's not trustworthy. This is a method issue. Paul and Barnabas had separate methods to accomplish the same goal that they had been commissioned to. And y'all, that's okay. That's okay that they had differing opinions. We put such a premium on unity sometimes that sometimes we can't help but to fight each other because we can't come to a point of compromise. We can't come to a point, everybody, we think that unity means everybody has to go about things the same way. That's not the case. That's never the way God intended it for the church. There is such a thing as, as church unity that does not necessarily include methodological unity. They were both accomplishing the task that they had been commissioned to, but they were accomplishing it in different ways. So I want us to look at the solution that I have proposed for methodological differences here. And those solutions are to either compromise or work separately. What I mean when I say compromise, now compromise, it gets kind of a bad rap as a word now. When you think compromise in a church, you probably think compromise our morals. Compromise our principles. Compromise our identity. That's not what I'm talking about. There are some things that we as a church should never compromise. We're going to talk about that second point. There are some things as a church we ought never compromise. There are some things as a church that we ought to compromise on and we get ourselves in trouble because we don't. We get ourselves in trouble because we don't. As a compromise, what I'm talking about, again, are over methodological differences. It's not, this is not liberalism. This is not giving up the gospel. This is not giving up our theological identity. It's changing a method. Now, one way that I, I gave, uh, I'm thinking of an example that you can think of, methodological compromise. Let's take hypothetical church. We'll call them, I don't know, there's probably a church named this around here. If they listen to this recording, I'm not talking about you. I don't even know who you are. Uh, we'll name them Beulah Baptist Church. There's a Beulah around here somewhere, isn't there? Yeah, okay. They don't exist for the purposes of this sermon. I don't know anybody that goes there. 
Let's pick Beulah Baptist Church. Beulah Baptist Church has got 100 people in it. Exactly 100. 50 of them, all they've ever known is Sunday school. That's it. The other 50 of them have gotten here within the last five years. All they've ever known is small groups in the house during the week. Some of them want the church to go to small groups because that's all they've ever known. Like, well, we're coming to church on Sunday morning, but we're not doing anything else during the week. Why don't we have small groups in our home and that way we can pray and we can disciple each other and we can live life together and that just seems so early church and, and neat to us. Why don't we all do that? So they want to do this. Then you got this group over here that goes, well, yeah, but when, when you do small groups at home, they tend to turn into social gatherings rather than turn into Bible study and prayer groups, which is what Sunday school is. Plus, how many of the folks that come to your small group at your house are actually going to show up at worship on Sunday morning? So that's why we want to have Sunday school at 945 and then we're going to have worship at 11 because we like to keep our church family together, not just fan them out where we can't build community. Do both sides have good points? Yes, they do. But is it fair for the small group side to ask the Sunday school side to stop everything they've already known and do it their way? No, it's not. Is it fair for the Sunday school side to tell the small group side, now y'all ain't been here all that long. This is the way we do it. You've got good points, but you're going to drop your small groups and you're going to do it this way. Is it fair for them to not pay attention to what they're saying? No. Here's my question. Biblically, looking at the way that Paul and Barnabas handled it. They both accomplished their goal. They just did it in different ways. Is there any reason hypothetical Beulah Baptist Church can't do both? No. The Sunday school folks can say, well, these are Sunday school classes. They just meet at home during the week. And we happen to have some small groups on Sunday morning. The small group side can say, well, these are small groups. But these folks just meet their small groups at the church on Sunday morning at 945. You might have some folks that Sunday school's going to be what reaches people. You're going to have some other folks that may not come to Sunday school, but they would respond to a small group. You can compromise. And you can build something new without alienating anybody else. You can add without subtracting, and the church gets healthier. You haven't forced either of them to give up something that's important to them. You have just built in another method of sharing the gospel and growing the kingdom of God compromising on methods, but not on doctrine. Now, there's also working separately as a solution to methodological issues. And that's what Paul and Barnabas ended up having to do. Them working separately was their compromise. Rather than just quit what they had been commissioned to do because they couldn't agree, they compromised and said, we can agree to disagree and still carry out our job. Working separately. Uh... If there is not a good way to compromise, provided separation would not do more harm to the church's witness, sometimes working separately is an option. Uh, sometimes it's just better to take folks that don't do a good job of working together and say, is there a way that you can both be used and that way you won't kill each other and both of your gifts can still be used in the context of, of the church? 
Now, there's sometimes that reaching compromise and, and separating folks out, there, there's sometimes it doesn't work well together. I'll give you an example of this, and I've seen this, and I'm sure some of you have too. Uh, have you ever heard of a church that they'll have, they'll have a contemporary music worship service early, and then they have a traditional worship service later, or vice versa? I, as a pastor, would never do that. It scares me to death, and I'll tell you why. Because you got half the church that feels like we can only worship if the music is like this. And the other half is exactly like that. It's just a different type of music. When you divide that out into two separate worship services, you know what you've actually done? You've divided it into two separate churches that just happen to meet in the same building. And what's worse is on top of that, you've told each of those groups of people that you don't, have to, you don't have to learn to work and live your life with this other group of people because they have different preferences than you. It teaches them that their idol of their preference is important enough that they don't have to associate with this other group of people. So I, I would never do that. I would say to folks on both sides, we need to find a way to work together. And if you can't find a way to work with, together with somebody over a personal preference, then I'm going to need to refer you to point three on this handout, which we will get to eventually, which is if it's a personal difference, you need to be a mature Christian and get past it. So methodological differences. Sometimes you can compromise and find a way to work together. Sometimes if you can't compromise or if it's going to just rip the church apart, you need to find a way that folks can work separately and not beat each other up or hurt the church's witness. That's what we see in this passage. Now, there are two other types of conflicts that I want us to talk about today. And, I, and I'll show you a couple of biblical examples, or just one biblical example of this before we move on. I got so wound up, I almost forgot this one. We've actually studied one of these. That this is a great example of a biblical compromise. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Now, in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer in the ministry of the word. They said this is an important enough issue. It needs to be dealt with. The widows don't need to be overlooked in the distribution. And we don't want our church to divide. We can't separate and say, y'all, Jews, you deal with the Jews. Hellenists, you deal with the Hellenists. Because you know what witness that's going to give to the rest of the world. That they, They're not united. They're two separate churches. They don't love each other. They won't take care of each other. So this was, that was not an option. They could not work separately. They had to find a way to compromise and work together. So what the church ended up doing was the Jewish leaders of the church at that time picked out seven men who were Hellenists to look over the table ministry. So now, there's no conflict anymore over who's getting left out. The church has found a new way to do ministry that reaches more people and nobody's fighting anymore. So new methods had to be invented to solve a problem, and that kept the church out of conflict, problem solved. That's how the disagreement was dealt with. So that's kind of all of it dealt with together there on that first point. Second, and this is where we get to talk about Reformation Day. I'm so excited. Theological differences. You don't have any of those in this passage. So why did I bring it up? 
Well, because of Reformation Day, and I had an excuse to because of disagreements in this passage. That's why I did it. Uh, that's why I said this sermon's not really normal because there's not enough there for me to, to, to talk about some of this other stuff even though I feel it is appropriate. So we're going we're gonna to fit this in here for a special occasion. Theological differences. What is the solution for theological differences? There's only one. And it doesn't sound good. But it is necessary. The only solution for the theological differences is separation. That's the only thing you can do. Because whereas on methods, you can compromise. On theology, you cannot compromise. Because to compromise theologically, to compromise doctrinally, is to make yourself something different than you are. For me as a Baptist, if I compromise, well, let me put it this way. For me as a Southern Baptist, if I compromise on the inerrancy of Scripture, I am no longer a Southern Baptist. It does not matter what I call myself. If I compromise on mode of baptism and I say, well, I got some folks in my church maybe who come from a Methodist background and they're not all big on immersion. So I want them to be members of the church and they agree with me on everything else, but they would rather be sprinkled than dumped. Can't I just? No, you can't. Because if you compromise on that, you are no longer what you are. If I started, if I started uh, sprinkling people, if I started uh, not immersing people, if I started denying the inerrancy of Scripture, y'all would run me out of here on a rail. And you ought to. Because I have compromised our theological beliefs. I no longer match up with the doctrine of the church. Now, if I to say hold to basically everything we did, but I was okay sprinkling people and I was okay baptizing quote-unquote babies, y'all would not have me as a pastor in here, but I could walk into any Presbyterian church of America and be just fine. That's what they believe. But that's why they're separated from us. That's why, they're, that's why they're what we call a denomination. We are separated for theological reasons, not methodological reasons. Theological reasons. Because it's Reformation Day, I pulled a piece of this article, and it's a little bit lengthy, but I'm going to get through it quick, um, on Martin Luther from History.com. And I don't know how many of you know the story of Martin Luther, but I want to read a little bit of it to you so that you can understand who I'm talking about and, and what he did. Martin Luther questions the Catholic Church. In early 16th century Europe, some theologians and scholars were beginning to question the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. It was also around this time that translations of the original texts, namely the Bible and the writings of the early church philosopher Augustine, became more widely available. Augustine had emphasized the primacy of the Bible rather than church officials as the ultimate religious authority. Woohoo! I like you, Augustine. He also believed that humans could not reach salvation by their own acts, but that only God could bestow salvation by His divine grace. In the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church taught that salvation was possible through good works or works of righteousness that please God. And by the way, they still do. Luther came to share Augustine's two central beliefs, which would later form the basis of Protestantism. 
Meanwhile, the Catholic Church's practice of granting indulgences to provide absolution to sinners became increasingly corrupt. Indulgence selling had been banned in Germany, but the practice continued unabated. In 1517, a friar named Johann Tetzel began to sell indulgences in Germany to raise funds to renovate St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Committed to the idea that salvation could be reached through faith and by divine grace only, Luther vigorously objected to the corrupt practice of selling indulgences. Acting on his belief, he wrote the Disputation of the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences, also known as the 95 Theses. If you see any pictures of Martin Luther nailing something to a door, that's what this is. It's a list of 95 very tiny print written, not stuck on this door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. Acting on Okay, so um, popular legend has it that on October 31st, 1517, Luther defiantly nailed a copy of his 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. The reality was probably not so dramatic. Luther more likely hung the document on the door of the church, matter-of-factly, to announce the ensuing academic discussion around it that he was organizing. The 95 Theses, which would later become the foundation of the Protestant Reformation, were written in a remarkably humble and academic tone, questioning rather than accusing. The overall thrust of the document was nonetheless quite provocative. The first two of these theses contained Luther's central idea that God intended believers to seek repentance and that faith alone, not deeds, would lead to salvation. The other 93 theses, a number of them directly criticizing the practice of indulgences, supported these first two. In addition to his criticisms of indulgences, Luther also reflected popular sentiment about the St. Peter's scandal in the 95 Theses. Listen to what he asked. This is how you get in trouble with the Pope. Why does the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, build the Basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than with the money of poor believers? Why, if the Pope is so rich, why does he need your money to build St. Peter's Basilica? Why doesn't he use his own? Isn't he supposed to be humble? Isn't he supposed to be generous? Isn't he supposed to be Christ-like? So if he has all these resources, why is he asking for your money to build, his, to build a house for him to live in instead of his? The 95 Theses were quickly distributed throughout Germany and then made their way to Rome. In 1518, Luther was summoned to Augsburg, a city in southern Germany, to defend his opinions before an imperial diet or assembly. A debate lasting three days between Luther and Cardinal Thomas Cajetan produced no agreement. Cajetan defended the church's use of indulgences, but Luther refused to recant and returned to Wittenberg. On November 9, 1518, the Pope condemned Luther's writings as conflicting with the teachings of the church. One year later, a series of commissions were convened to examine Luther's teachings. The first papal commission found them to be heretical, but the second merely stated that Luther's writings were scandalous and offensive to pious ears. Finally, in July 1520, Pope Leo X issued a public decree that concluded that Luther's propositions were heretical and gave Luther 120 days to recant in Rome. Luther refused to recant, and on January 3, 1521, Pope Leo excommunicated Martin Luther from the Catholic Church. On April 17, 1521, Luther appeared before the Diet of Worms in Germany, Refusing again to recant, Luther concluded his testimony with the defiant statement, Here I stand, God help me, I can do no other. 
On May 25th, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V signed an edict against Luther, ordering his writings to be burned. Luther hid in the town of Eisenach for the next year, where he began work on one of his major life projects, the translation of the New Testament into German, which took him ten years to complete. This man had been a Catholic his entire life. He never wanted to cease to be Catholic. He just looked at the Catholic Church and said, which by the way, Luther never intended to be a priest. He never intended to be a monk. He intended to be a lawyer. That didn't work out. So he goes into the monastery, he becomes a professor, and he begins reading the Bible for himself. Imagine that. Why do you think we as Baptists put such a high premium on reading the Bible and knowing the Bible ourselves? He starts reading the Bible and he starts looking at it and he looks at the teachings of the Catholic Church and he says, these two things don't match. So like any good Catholic, he starts asking questions and he says, well, hang on. It's my job to, to know and teach the Bible as a professor now, as a, as, a, as, a, as a monk. So if what I see in the Bible doesn't match what the Catholic Church, who is supposed to be the interpreter of the Bible, is telling me, then how do I know that these interpretations are right? And they called him a heretic and told him that his writings had to be burned and that he was wrong. And Luther said, I'm not wrong. I've read them myself. I've studied them. I know. So if the Catholic Church will not reform, then I can no longer be part of it. And here we are, 500 years later, not part of it. The only solution to theological differences is either reform or separation. You can't do anything else. Now, there are two different kinds of, of theological separation here. Uh, I want to draw a distinction between them. There's separation over primary doctrines and there's separation over secondary doctrines. What's the difference between the two? If we differ with somebody on a primary doctrine, these are doctrines that if somebody differs from you on that, they are not in any real sense a Christian. If someone tells you, no, 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 no. If someone says, I'm a Christian, but listen. I'm a Christian who is a Jehovah's Witness. And I don't believe that Jesus bodily rose from the grave. Well, they can call themselves a Christian, but I'm sorry. They've run aground of one of the primary doctrines of Christian faith. And if you don't believe in a bodily resurrection, you are in no real sense a Christian. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. Talk to me later about dogs and chicken feathers, and I'll explain how that works. Ask me later. Not now. I don't want to start giggling. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. If you run aground to one of these doctrines, you are no longer a Christian. We cannot, we can't, there is no compromise, nothing. You are not part of the church with a little c or the church with a big c. Primary doctrines. Then there are secondary doctrines. These are issues where you would not deny someone's Christianity. If you ask them a question about the gospel, how somebody is saved, they'll agree with you. They'll explain it the same way. But you differ on secondary issues that would not affect that person's salvation. For instance, I have some very good friends who are conservative Presbyterians. 
If you were to ask them, how is a person saved? They would give you the same answer I would. And they would not argue. They, they would, I could explain the gospel. They would say, yes, amen, preach on, brother. And they could explain the gospel. And I would say, yes, amen, preach on, brother. If I were, if I were to ask, you know, uh, several other questions, you know, do you believe the Bible's inerrant? Absolutely. I will die on that mountain. Now, do you believe that baptism is by immersion only? Well, no. Wait. Yeah, we sprinkle. We sprinkle babies. Oh, boy. We differ now. That's a difference of interpretation in Scripture. They look at baptism differently than we do. They still want to obey Scripture. They still believe that the Bible is the measure of all faith and practice. But there's just a little bit of traditional understanding thrown in there. And they believe that that's valid. We don't. So while we agree on the gospel, we disagree with them on that secondary doctrinal issue. I'm not going to doubt their salvation. I am going to believe that they are not practicing with utmost biblical faithfulness. And they would say the same about me. That's why we're not in the same building. We'll be in the same heaven. And they'll know that they should have been immersed in the whole time then. But I don't question their salvation, nor would they question ours. Does that make sense? Now, I want to show you a couple of, of biblical passages that deal with theological differences. First Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. Uh, Paul says, Even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And verse 9 basically repeats it. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. When theological compromise rears its head, it usually sounds really good. It sounds really, let me use a cultural buzzword, it sounds really tolerant and inclusive. That's the way it usually shows up. Well, there are all these different people all over the world that they don't believe the way you do. Are you really willing to say that all of them are lost? How do you know that, that God isn't reaching them in their own special way? That's how. It's not my opinion. It's what God said. And it might sound inclusive. It might sound kind. It might sound loving. But it sure doesn't sound biblical. You can't compromise on theological issues or you lose your own theological identity. And you just drop into the giant sea of paganism and heresy and just start swirling around with everything else. Solid doctrine requires clear lines of demarcation. And so Paul said if somebody starts preaching any gospel that is not the biblical gospel, if it includes anything that is not the biblical gospel, separate from it. Do not include it. Do not, no, don't. Just keep it out. Well, you're being intolerant. Yes. You're discriminating. Yes, I am. Everybody discriminates. You discriminate between which sub you want when you go to Subway. 
You make choices. The Bible commands us to make choices. I've set before you this day life and death. Choose life. You've been given the biblical gospel. And you've been given other choices too. Choose the truth. Set clear lines of demarcation and do not walk outside them. And then second, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is why, whenever we look at baptism, this is why we make a big deal about it. Gosh, you Baptists are just so uptight about everything. If y'all would just calm down about the dunking versus sprinkling, it's not that big of a deal. Yes, it is. But have you ever thought about why? It's not like you're more righteous based on how wet you get. We don't fill it up with liquid righteousness and see just how much of it we can get on you. So why do we do it? Very simple, because the word baptizo means to immerse. That's what the word in the Bible means. So because we believe that the Bible, as Baptists, we believe that the Bible is the ultimate final standard of all faith and practice, if the Bible in its original original text uses the word immerse, how ought you to baptize? You ought to immerse. Immerse. 